You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with award-winning photographer Ralph Gibson. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Well, I was born in 1939. My father worked at Warner Brothers. And as a little boy, I was around a lot of famous actors. And my father was assistant director. He worked with Hitchcock on a number of films. And so I was occasionally on the set as an extra. And I met Hitchcock a few times. And a lot of people from that period, Orson Welles, and these giants of the cinema in Hollywood during the 40s and 50s. And I would visit the set. And the lights were very bright. They were orthochromatic films. So they needed these huge arc lamps to illuminate. The film was very slow. And to get a small f-stop, they had to have massive amounts of light, which accounts for the tropism in my work the high contrast, the black and white. But then, after, when I was 12 or 13, due to the alcoholism on the part of my parents, the family broke up, and I was out of the house at 16, and into the Navy the day I turned 17, and they just made me a photographer. Now, I, had, I felt that I had failed my family when my parents divorced as an adolescent. You subconsciously think it's your fault. And then I had failed high school. Then I went to photo school in the Navy and felt failed that as well. And so I had reached an interesting name at age 17 and six months of being totally useless, worthless, etc. So I wrote the captain a letter basically begging to get back in school, and he sent me to school again. And I came out with photo school, this time highly motivated. And I was crossing the North Atlantic in a storm, standing watch at three in the morning, and I was freezing and miserable, and I shouted at the sky, the lightning, some, I'm going to be a photographer. Well, on the other side of that storm, above that storm, must have been my lucky star, because I have never for an instant doubted my destiny or my reason for existence. This is not a metier. This is an identity. And so with that, I got out of the Navy highly trained technically and fully armed emotionally with a sense of what I was going to do with my meager existence. The way I measured time for a very large part of my life was I was always in preparation. I remember as a child, I was preparing to make my first communion, then I was preparing to go into junior high or grammar. There was always these lapses that, that existed ahead of us where we were progressing through time predicated on noteworthy events. But I went into the Navy, then I got my driver's license, then I got out of the Navy. And so all these things were, I was always functioning as though there was going to be a significant event which occurred in some kind of a concept of the future. And that coincided in parallel with the fact that when you're young, you feel essentially immortal because the idea of being old or dying is so abstract, it's so far away that you see, I don't know what age you are. Let's grab an age and say 27. Oh, that's a nice age. Yes, I thought you might like that. So the thing is when you're 27, all you really can do is process the experience of having lived for 27 years. When you're 40, that's what you know. You know what it's like to be 40, but you don't really know what it's like to be 45 until et cetera, et cetera. So now that I'm at this phase of my life, one of the only, Bukowski has this beautiful quote. He said, when you're young, time lies before you like an ocean. When you get older, you feel time rushing towards you. Well, I'm in that phase where all I'm really interested in doing is maintaining my health and doing my push-ups and profiting from as much time as I have left because now I'm at the very peak of my powers as a photographer. I'm getting pictures much faster and in greater ratio and I'm moving through the experience at a rate that I always had yearned towards. And in terms of exhibitions and publications and all that, I have everything I wanted when I was 40. I've never wanted to be invisible. I've never really 
I'm voyeuristic, but in a purely intellectual way, you know. I would suspect that years ago, I, we may have discussed this previously, my, the reason for functioning in a vertical format is because the horizontal rectangle is the proportion of all narration, all visual narrative in all society now. It used to be just Western, but it's all around the world now. TV is horizontal. It's only with the emprise of the, the iPhone that people are starting to go to vertical or square again. But historically, your television, your laptop, your cinema, all these things, many tableau. I wanted to eliminate any reference to the narrative because essentially all I'm really trying to show, is, all I'm trying to express is how it feels to look at something. And I, the event, if I wait until somebody's getting shot in the head in, in Vietnam, that famous war photograph, that's the event, that's the content of the photograph. In my case, the content is when I get my vision sufficiently stimulated to where I can perceive the corner of this desk with sufficient clarity to render it in some sort of monumental way. I want to make pictures of absolutely nothing surely based on the force of my perception and the power of photography. I am more interested now in writing on aesthetics from a theoretical basis. I find I'm able to express certain things that I'd always wondered about on a purely intuitive level. And so that's the nature of my writings. I have a book in the works entitled Theorem, which picks up from that series that you're familiar with, the vertical horizon and nature object, things I did after that. They're much more based on theory of perception, theory of socially defined shapes, theory of cultural applications to how we perceive. And you see, I can express le ciel, I can express the sky. The two different languages, same sky, slightly different. There is a difference when you say le ciel or the sky. Cielo in Italiano. You see, it, the emphasis, the sound of the word produces a response that impacts our perception of the object being described. So if the word sounds slightly different, the object is going to shift. In an interesting way, it doesn't have to be positive nor negative, it's just always interesting to me how I think of it, which gets us closer to a, a musical construct, because music is purely abstract sound, capable of defining the undefinable, and it also happens to be a language that's universally spoken. You would place certain pieces of music in, in any society in the world, and it would be to some extent or another perceived, understood. I recently read that there's never been a people that didn't have a music. And that can be a very small group of people. It doesn't have to be a gigantic society like Asian or Caucasian. It could be a small splinter group somewhere. The, the great photographer Ansel Adams left his negatives to the Center of Creative Photography with the understanding that people could take them and print them and reinterpret them. I think that probably more what occurs in my case is that years ago I observed that you could take a fashion photograph, a great man ray fashion photograph or something, and 25 years later it was art. It was no longer a fashion concern. And, and Claude Lévi-Strauss, the great socioanthropologists has made this sort of thing clear. Society changes, and with it, the context through which we observe something has changed as well. So quite possibly, the way this woman, Sabine, she was younger than I, she's probably in her 40s, you know, and Isabel, they both did their thing. They would see it through a different set of filters, you know. I like the way, for example, we take the work of recently uh, deceased artists like Warhol or Basquiat, Recently, there was a great show there, which I was in town for, at the Vuitton. 
And every five years or so, their importance doubles as artists. And it's not just the price of the painting, it's the nature of the work and how it impacted what was before it and what came afterwards. And we're all amateur historians, all art historians all our lives, and we continue to feel this sort of thing. Obviously, I remain obsessed with Twombly, whom I think is ever more important. And now there's an interesting Kiefer show across the river here I'm going to go see. And so I like the role of art in society and my relationship to my society and to art in my society. And of course, being here in France, which is a little bit different because things here are all French and we see them through that matrix. Now I'm interested in this phase of my life and how does the mind influence the mind? Fortunate to be able to visit the original Lascaux cave in Ribarath, the Dordogne. And in any of these Paleolithic caves, we find these, there's certain themes. There seems to be, as long as humanity has been on planet Earth, there's always been war. There's always been migration. There's always been a search for God, a form of worship. And there's always been a fear of the apocalypse, the end of the world which if you open up Perry Match tomorrow or the New York Times on the front page, you will find those four subjects are still being addressed. Now, so we're talking about 30, 40,000 BC up to today. Now, of course, things are moving much faster now than they did 40,000 years ago, but it's an awful big planet. And Gloria Anderson gave me this great line. She said, people who think that technology is gonna solve the world's problems don't really know much about technology or their problems. But she admitted it wasn't an original line. She was quoting. But it's true. I think that capitalism, which created much of this pollution and this and that, will find a way of sustaining itself in cleaning up all this pollution. I have asked two generals and four diplomats why the governments of the world are shifting to the right. In Europe, they all gave me the same answer at four different times. In Europe, it's because of immigration. And in America, it's because of the left behind. Les sur comptes. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, this is, these are real concrete, in-your-face, right-now problems that, that could have an impact. Their, their solution or lack thereof could have an impact in the next five, ten minutes, depending where you happen to be. Find yourself seated. And I'm very curious to see how that's going to play out, because it probably will in my lifetime. We'll go back to my origins. In 1950, my father was unemployed. The Hollywood shut down because television had just arrived. And they said, oh, the movie theaters are going to close until they started coexisting and making films for television. Now, I believe that AI will be an incredibly useful. We were doing a press release. Mary Jane, my wife, is very active in it. So she write a press release about an upcoming this or that. And it spit out something that you could then personalize. That's very useful in that way. But humanity has endured primarily because of its inherent characteristics. Now, we might, I see things like NFTs and AI and Spotify and file sharing and things like that. You see, there was a time when I moved to New York where I could drift through the empty museum galleries of the moment and have my epiphanies. Now you go to the same museum, it's like, a, it's like the Tokyo subway. You, you know, it's a bunch of sardines. You're really, that's what's, that's what's happening because there's too many people in the world for the delivery system to any longer be effective. Museums are delivery systems. We're moving into a world of the private museum now because the great collectors are building their own museums. I am happy to report since I've seen you, I have a museum in South Korea in my name. And so, you know, I'm funneling, channeling, putting 
hundreds and hundreds of prints into this museum in Busan in an attempt to personalize the situation as opposed to, but by the time you've got 8 billion people living in the planet Earth for 100 years, there, there's a lot of people like me. We know that people are living longer now thanks yeah. to medicine and nutrition. And you and do medicine. yoga every day? Sir? Yeah, I do. I stand on my head. I do all that stuff. And I've been walking here in Paris a minimum of three to four miles a day, which is what that really does good. And I do tend to think that file sharing, more people are listening to more music than ever before. You would have previously had to put a tower record on every street corner in order to give it, effectively distribute that much music. Now, NFTs, obviously, as the audience spreads for a work of art, quite often the content goes down. You could have a photograph and sell the original print and have 100% of your intention, or it could be reproduced on the cover of the New York Times at 72 DPI, three by four inches, and you'd get some of it, but you wouldn't get the whole thing, but a million people would see it. Now with the digital situation, working digitally, if the image stays in that digital space permanently, the only real shortcoming is the excessively bright, heavy saturated screen on your computer. That tends to exaggerate things a bit. And in that book, Self-Exposure, one of the things was I did realize as I was writing it, all autobiographies are chronological and anecdotal. They, that's the way they unfold. And I realized that there were certain decisions I had made along the way that were crucial. And there was really only a handful of them. But I was very fortunate because I had that initial desire to, to be a photographer. I don't even know if it was a desire. I think it was something much, much further beyond that. I would have to say it was more of a, I didn't really choose photography, it sort of chose me, you know. I mean, no lo contendere, I just did what I knew I had to do. There was a sense of devoir, you know, you just do it. I wouldn't be able to effectively delineate where my life ends and photography begins. They're one and the same. If my eyes are open, I'm seeing. If I'm seeing, I'm essentially in that valence within which, or from within which, come the images. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.